you always hear us investors say that, oh, well, we just want to make sure that the founder is coachable. That's true. But the best founders that I've seen are the ones who know what they don't know. Mm. So they kind of realize, look, my strength isn't X, or I don't really know a lot about Y, but then they go out and they search for those people that do. And that's how you get the best complimentary teams. I'm your host, Emily Kin, And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. I met today's guest, Marsha Daoud, on a speaker's group, and I was immediately fascinated by her work and mission. How could investing be re-envisioned in order to produce change? How, by investing in amazing woman-led companies, we can help solve big problems? So it's totally my pleasure to have her here today with us. So thank you so much for accepting my invitation, Marsha. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Yes. And I was looking to your websites and your presence online. And one of the things in your bio, and one of the things that really uh, pop out was that you already have invested in over 200 early stage private companies. So I'm super curious to know, how did you start this journey and this mission and why? Yes. So it was about 10 years ago. Uh, my husband and I, my husband's in finance, and, and we were invited by one of his colleagues to an angel investing group meeting. And I said, what is angel investing? I have no <laughs> idea. And uh he, you know, kind of explained it a little bit, but we went to the meeting and I really loved the group. I loved the woman who was running it. And I got pretty involved over the next couple of years, even though at the time I was still working full-time in corporate America for at least another couple of years after that. But the way that I've really been able to get involved with so many companies and have, you know, quite a diversified portfolio, as we call it, is because I got more involved in funds where funds are able to help companies by pooling money from multiple people. And I found that to be really interesting because this is a very risky asset class. In a lot of cases, you know, there's a lot of companies that don't make it. They just, most of the time, the biggest reason is because they run out of money. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to do was say, well, how can I be in this game long-term? I can help more companies and be able to make such an impact. And the only way to really do that is to try to de-risk this asset class as much as you can. And the way that I did that was to be able to take a small amount of money and spread it over multiple companies. So I have made direct investments into companies, but many of those 200 companies are within funds. So it's almost like micro loans. Well, 
Not really, because the what we do is we pool the money together and then we mm-hmm. as a group invest it through the fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that really is how we diversify our risk, because with our one investment, we could get exposure to, let's say, 10 or 15 companies. And that way we are able to keep our risk at a minimum, because if one or two of those companies doesn't do well, or even five of them, you still have the other ones that could make it up. So love it. How it works. Yeah. So and you have more control than in the stock market, to be honest with you. So, <laughs> so but let's let, I, I want to backtrack and go back here a moment here in terms of your experience, because you're saying that you came from corporate America. What yes. tell, tell me a little bit about that journey in corporate America. So I worked at Kaplan Education for almost 17 years, and I worked for the first 10 years in sales and marketing. And then the last seven, I was in operations. So I had a lot of different types of jobs at that organization, and I really loved it. I loved the people I worked with. We had a great mission. We were helping students to get education. Um, But I realized kind of as I was working there that 17 years is a long time to be at the same place. Yes. And I I didn't feel like I was really growing and wanted to do uh, something different after all that time. So as I was getting more involved and learning more about angel investing, I felt like that was such a great place to put my time and now my skill set from all of this great work I'd done at Kaplan. And that's how I got more and more involved. And that's really when I learned more about how little money goes to women and people of color. And that's when I really wanted to make a significant change. And I bet that your background in sales marketing and operations can be very helpful when you are looking to these companies, uh, when you are bringing the portfolios together, because you really can see if they, they have things to make it work. Yes, that definitely helped. But I also jumped into one of the startup companies that I had been in, I am an investor in, and I was their COO for over a year. So I kind of saw the inside of a startup and I've been on the other side as an investor. So I think that's super helpful because when these companies are very small, when they get started, there's a lot of things that one person, they may have the role of like a marketing person or a salesperson or even the CEO, and that they have so many jobs that they have to do because yes. there's just not that many people. Yes, they have to wear many hats. Many hats, yes. <laughs> to, make, to make it work. And and tell us, because I think I was not, I knew that was a small percentage, but it's incredible how small it is. The, the, uh, for women uh, health companies that are starting is really difficult for them to get any type of financing, correct? Well, it's really less than 5% of the venture capital money uh, goes to women. I think angel world, you know, angels are, you know, for, our, for your listeners, angels are people who write checks out of their own checkbook. Venture capitalists are people who have bigger funds and they usually get institutional money, money from companies or pension funds and things like that. But either way, the amount of money that goes to women is is very, very small. And a lot of that, there are inherent biases and there's lots of research and and articles that people could read related to that. But um, it's changing. It's just changing quite slowly. And gosh, and you are being in the front line to make that change sure happening. 
and now you are a venture partner with this international firm, Mindshift Capital. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? So a couple of years ago, I was asked to be on an investment committee for an impact fund called Next Wave Impact. And that fund, we invested in 15 different companies. There were nine of us making the decisions, but we had um, 90 other investors who were doing it along with us. So it was really a, a, a group effort. And I think of the 99 of us, um, I think 98 were women. And that's really unusual. Usually you see more, more men in venture uh, capital and even angel investing. And um, so while I was with uh, working with Next Wave, I met Heather Henyon and she decided that she really wanted to make this change toward helping women, not just here in the US, but she has lived in the MENA region for 13 years of her life. And how could we try to get more exposure across borders? So she asked me if I'd be interested in helping her with this mission. And so I am a venture partner. That means that I help her with the deal flow and the different companies that we invest in here in the US. And then there's two other venture partners in the Middle East that do the same thing. Yeah. Because MENA, uh, MENA region means the Middle East and North, North Africa, correct? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is, <laughs> if you're in the United States, I think the numbers are low for investing in woman-led companies. I imagine with the bias and the culture in those uh, area of the world, is the challenge are even um, bigger. It's definitely getting better, but yes. Um, and Heather actually started the first women's angel group in the Middle East. Wow, amazing! She's really a pioneer. <laughs> and this is, is incredible. And the, how you? Yes, you speak about the, the because we know that any startup out there, uh, there is a risk. Uh, somebody, anybody listening that you decide to go by yourself, start a company, of course, there is always a risk. Um, but how can you increase your odds in your favor? What will be the advice that you give for people out there starting yeah. <laughs> to, um, to have more chances to succeed? Yes. So I am part of the Angel Capital Association, which is the... Um, North American Professional Society of Angel Investors. Uh, and we, as a group, um, we're trying to educate, we're trying to get data. Uh, we do a lot of public policy work and I'm on the board of directors. I, I actually happen to be the chair of the board right now. We uh, do research every year about how can, to answer that exact question that you're asking, how can we start to be, have it be less risky, have us be more successful as angels so that we will want to continue to do this and we'll, yes. more people will want to do it. And one of the big things is the more diligence that you do for a company, it has been proven that the odds will be better. So I say that in the sense that when you're looking at a company for investment, a private company, there's a lot of information that you're trying to get. You, you're also making, uh, you're having lots of meetings with the founders, um, but you're, you're really just trying to gather 
the reasons why you are going to invest. There's plenty of reasons out there for you not to invest. These are small companies. There's always going to be something like they haven't hired a marketing person yet, or they don't have their tech completely built out, or you could name a hundred things, but you're really looking for what are the things that you think are really going to make this company go? And what big problem are they solving? Because I say to entrepreneurs often, are you really solving a big problem or do you have a solution that's in search of a problem? problem. Love it. And if you aren't solving that big problem and your problem isn't big enough, then a lot of times those companies aren't going to work out because people will figure out how to solve their own problems unless it's just so sticky and so messy that somebody's going to come along and just make it so easy that they'll switch. I, I love that. Let's stay here a moment because I think this is really goal for anybody in any type of business. Do you have a big, are, uh, what are the big problems that you are solving? Not having a solution, looking for a problem to solve uh, because that is like the, the core because the, like you're saying, the sales team, the marketing team, that can be fixed. But if at the core, there is not uh, that essence of a big problem that they, they have the capacity of making it easy for people, is, that is much more easy. You want to have that from the beginning. Right. And you said the, the more the diligence you do, uh, the better the chances, but that is from the investor's perspective. Correct. I want to, from the business owner, founder perspective, how, okay, making sure that uh, they have clarity about the big problem that they are solving yeah. uh, and what else? Well, I would say that, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of things that founders have to go through that are kind of like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. They have to go looking for money because they need money to grow their business, but their business isn't grown enough for them to get money. So it's like this (laughs) cycle that they're going through, right? And it's tough. It's really, really tough. I always tell founders, look, I know it's hard. And you're thinking if I just got whatever X amount of money, everything will be great. I've heard so many founders say that. But the more a founder can build on fumes, and I know that's really, really hard to do sometimes, but the more they can do that and really bootstrap, the more they can show an investor and and a group of investors kind of how much they can do with very little. And investors love to see that. So if they can see you stretching a dime, you know, so far that's going to, in the long run, get you A, probably more investors down the road, and B, it's going to mean that you didn't give away a bigger chunk of your company early. And I'm always cautioning founders to say, listen, be so careful in the early days. You think you're like, oh, 5% here or 10% there, but that all really starts to add up. And the next thing you know, you really are getting traction and you want to go for a bigger funding round and you don't have that much equity left in the company to give away. And what is that mindset that they have to cultivate in order to being able to be creative in stretching all the resources that will be money, of course, and their time Time. uh, to have a better chance of success? In a lot of cases, I've seen 
good founders will find their co-founders, whether it's somebody who's going to be full-time with the business down the road or whatever, but they find people who will help them in their off hours. So they don't necessarily have to go all in and say, I'm going to, you know, right off the bat, quit my job and I'm not going to have any other income other than what I can get out of the startup. I mean, that's a little bit unrealistic. The best founders I've seen have surrounded themselves with people who have the level of expertise that they need in order to be successful so that then they go and they utilize that expertise to the point where they have something tangible to show investors so then they can start to build the company. Then they start to take the full-time employees. So loads of sweat equity. So yes, ga- yeah, gathering a team, the founding team is an, an, not a solo thing, but the, the team that allows them to start to put something out there and they are going to be wearing many hats, but and possibly to find somebody for the team that complements you, that brings to the table strengths that maybe you don't have. Exactly. So be, be open to that. Dream together. Create something together. There is more probabilities of making succeed. Right. You always hear us uh, investors say that, oh, well, we just want to make sure that the founder is coachable. That's true. But the best founders that I've seen are the ones who know what they don't know. So they kind of realize, look, my strength isn't X, or I don't really know a lot about Y, but then they go out and they search for those people that do. And that's how you get the best complementary teams. So that goes in alignment with that. I think there is even a book with that name. Don't, uh, uh, don't look for how to do something, but look who the person that can help you do that thing that can be really good on that. So what, uh, now we, I was interviewing another amazing person here in the podcast the other day, and she was speaking that we are coming out of really five pandemics, and I'm just trying to go here to my notes to find how she frames this, it's the COVID-19, of course, and then the other pandemics that she was referring to was the social justice movement here in the United States that really was triggered with the Floyd situation, the mental health crisis that has been here for a while, uh, but not really uh, under the radar for many people, the environment concerns and the, the global warming situation and the economical crisis of uh, disparity of uh, incomes and uh, so forth. So how in this, so the world, <laughs> and now we have uh, uh, the war in Ukraine to complicate even the world situation even, even more. So this is a world that is tough. This is changing a lot. What will be the advice that you will give to somebody now in the beginning stages of their companies to um, to survive all these things? Yes, that's such a great question. And I'll tell you that the the people or the founders that I saw during the pandemic who were able to pivot and make decisions for their companies that were quick, but not too hasty, and that they were thoughtful and productive, those were the founders that thrived in a very challenging environment. So when I look at what 
can a founder think or do? Well, whatever you're thinking, your timeline is, whatever your projections are, they're probably wrong. Mm. (laughs) So you really need to look at what, you know, all of the different kind of snafus that can come in along the way and just be flexible and know that there are going to be times that it's going to get tough or things are not going to go the way that you want them to. And that's okay. It's all about how you handle it. It's not so much what's happening to you. It's really how you're dealing with it. Love it. Love it. Because it's all about embracing the messiness of the process of of, (laughs) that is is messy. Don't expect that things are not going to go according to the plan. That doesn't mean that you should not have a plan, but you have to adapt. You have to be planning and you have to embrace that messiness. And another thing that I think fits so well with positive psychology is that if people start to change things from a place of fear, from a place of negative emotions, is really uh, not a good result usually because uh, our field of vision Figuratively and um, in reality, we we have a narrow, a tunnel vision when we are under stress. And if we manage even in situations that are tough and uh, there are big obstacles and challenges to solve, if uh, the person manages for a moment to, instead of listen to the negative voices, the judging inner criticals in their heads, if they manage to dial them down and listen to their inner wise self, their sage, They that by itself is like opening a space to be more open, to be more creative, to tap uh, into a more positive energy that is also great to build relationships and to tap into the relationships that already build and come up with different solutions and different ways of doing things that really can open amazing opportunities. Completely agree. And you've heard, some people may have heard this saying, don't let a a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) And in a lot of cases, I saw entrepreneurs who embraced the things that were going on and said, hey, I'm going to take this, you know, what looks on the surface to be not so great and turn it into something that can be very positive. And I, I can give you an example yeah, love it. I met I met a woman really amazing um, who was starting a fitness company called Forte, and this was back in 2015. And she wants her vision was to be able to put her favorite classes, yoga classes, boxing classes, fitness classes of any kind, online so that she could do them in her home. Now, keep in mind this is 2015, long yes. before Peloton was a big thing. <laughs> um, although she did live next to the Peloton studio in New York, and that's kind of how she got the idea. So anyway, fast forward, she's been building the company for several years during COVID. All of a sudden, there were places like the YMCA that didn't have the ability to put their classes online. All of a sudden, her technology got kind of refigured, transformed. And now she's got all kinds of different companies coming to her, doing pilots, and who are wanting to put their, um, their, their fitness classes online. And 
So MindShift actually invested in Forte just in 2021, but it was six years after I met the founder. So, you know, this is a good example of you build relationships with people over time. It doesn't mean if you ask someone to invest in your company and the answer is not now, or if you may actually even take it as a no, it really doesn't mean no. It just means we're building, we're still building a relationship. We're still seeing like how this is going to all work out. And this is also a great example. She identified a big problem that some people want to exercise from home. Uh, right. And she started to develop the solution for that. And with the COVID-19 situation, that problem just became bigger and bigger. And bigger she and really, bigger. because she had done the previous work, she really cool seize the opportunity. That's right. Yeah. And and the other thing that you are saying that is so important is uh, uh, no, uh, don't uh, people always say we are uh, building relationships. And if somebody saying, no, now is not the right time as a client, as an investor, we still can keep building the relationships. If the essence, if there is an alignment, in my opinion, in core values there, keep building those relationships. That's right. There's another saying I'll give you, which is, don't ask for money, ask for advice. And if you want advice, ask for money. Because in a lot of cases, if you ask for one, you'll get the other, whether you want to or not. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they, they are, they have skin in the game. They start to have skin in the game. So interesting. So, huh, so don't repeat that. Don't ask for money. So, if you ask for money, in a lot of cases, you may get advice. Mm -hmm. But if you ask for advice, you may get money. And I'll give you an example. So um, if I've had I've seen founders who have like this really cool idea and they don't necessarily want they're they're not ready for investment yet, but they go and they start talking to some investors because they're saying, hey, what do you think? I should do about X, Y, and Z? Like, should I do this with my company or that? And the investor will get interested because now the pressure of thinking, oh my gosh, I this person wants money from me. How, how am I going to, you know, I got to look at all these things. Now the pressure's off. There's, there's more, that's when the relationship building really starts. And I've seen over and over again where, where investors will be giving some advice and very quickly that will turn into getting money because now they are looking at the company a little bit differently because mm. they're, they don't have that, oh my gosh, I have to be thinking about this in a diligence way. I have to make sure that I, you know, uh, take care of my financial situation while I'm looking at that, you know, so all of that gets off the table and the relationship can actually start building a little bit. And I, I love because it's another example of how taking the pressure, the negative situation, the stress that really narrows our perspective in this case of the investor you are allowing by asking for advice is a much more open thing that allows them, okay, and then they are more curious in a, from a positive place, curious to know more, to help, and then the other things will happen almost as a, a natural evolution if it's the right thing. That's exactly right. Absolutely adore this. So where people can learn more about you and about this work and to learn more about uh, the angel investors, the, uh, the mind shift capital. So tell me a couple of places where people can start. Their sure. Uh, they can go to mindshiftcapital.com to learn all about mind shift. Uh, the angel capital association dot 
org is the website to learn about the Angel Capital Association. Now, we are, as I said, the association of a professional society of all angel investors in North America and some globally as well. But on our website, we have a list of all of the angel groups who are members of the ACA across the country. So if you are looking for funding and you're thinking, hmm, I wonder if there are any angel groups near me or any angel groups that invest in someone like me. For example, if you're a woman, there are lists of um, the different groups that invest in women, people of color, those types of things. So all of that is on the Angel Capital Association's website website as long as well as some uh, educational materials. And if they want to reach out to you for even people for another interview or for anything or speaking, because you also do, you are a speaker, you also do keynotes, is better LinkedIn to find you in LinkedIn or what is the best way that they, they can, can find, find me? Yep, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just Marsha Dawood on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find me. And um, also I have a website, uh, MarshaDawood.com. Love it. That is the amazing thing of having a more, a little bit unique name. We get the name. Yes. That's right. (laughs) Makes it easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for your time today. This is really inspiring. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Thank you for listening. And remember to visit Mindset dot zone yes instead of dot com it's dot zone there you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources all at mindset dot zone as always i'm so grateful you are here expand what's possible for you for the ones around you part of the world.